Let's start at the very beginning A very good place to start When you read, you begin with A-B-C When you sing, you begin with Do-Re-Mi 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 The first three notes just happen to be Do-Re-Mi I'll make it easier for you. Listen. Do, a deer, a female deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Ba, a long, long way to run. So, a needle pulling thread. La, a note to follow so. A drink with jam and bread That will bring us back to dough Oh, oh, oh A deer, a female deer Ray A drop of golden sun Me A name I call myself Fa A long, long way to run So I need a pulling thread La I know to follow so Now, children, once you have these notes in your head, you can sing a million different tunes by mixing them up like this. So, do, la, fa, mi, do, re. Now you do it. So, do, la, fa, mi, do, re. So, do, la, ti, do, Let's put it all together. So, do, la, fa, mi, do, re. So, do, la, ti, do, re, do. But it doesn't mean anything. So, we put in words. One word for every note. When you know the notes, Sing. You can sing most anything together when you know the notes to sing. You can sing most anything. Don't a deer, a female 
Mary Martin there singing Do Re Mi from the original Broadway cast recording of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The Sound of Music. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome from me, Adrian Fuchs, to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM and to the second installment of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. It's wonderful being back with you again this evening as we celebrate the great women of musical theatre. In the introduction to the series, Included as part of the first program, I provided a brief rationale as to the selection of the artists included in Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. And so, before we start tonight's show, a brief recap of what is still in store over the course of the next six weeks here on Fine Music Radio every Friday at 8pm. Next week, June 19th, it's the turn of the indomitable Elaine Stritch, and the week after that, on June 26th, a two-class act, the one and only Angela Lansbury. This will be followed on July 3rd by a program on probably the most well-known and loved leading lady of them all, Julie Andrews. Bernadette Peters will be the focus of my show on July 10th, followed by the first lady of British musical theatre, Elaine Page, on July 17th, and finally on July 24th, my favourite Broadway leading lady, the great Patti Lupone. Last week's program, the first in the series, was dedicated to the larger-than-life original brassy broad, Ethel Merman. Tonight, the spotlight falls on a star who in many ways was the opposite of Merman, Mary Martin, the big-eyed all-American gal from Texas who went on to become one of Broadway's brightest stars and one of its most charming, vivacious and best-loved performers. Before we continue... And in case you missed last week's program on Ethel Merman, or would like to listen again to tonight's show, a reminder that you can do so on my website, On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. That's www.onandofftherecord.com. You can also download a podcast of tonight's program from iTunes. And please do get in touch with feedback, comments, questions or suggestions. Unfortunately, I'm not in the studio to receive your phone calls, but you can reach me via the On and Off the Record Facebook page or via email, adrian at onandofftherecord.com. But now, on with tonight's show. With her radiant stage presence, warm golden voice and legendary charm, Mary Martin became one of musical theatre's greatest stars. A favourite with songwriters, critics and audiences, she originated such Tony Award-winning leading roles as Nellie Forbush in South Pacific, the title role in Peter Pan and Maria in The Sound of Music. But even though her roles were iconic, Martin doesn't inspire the same devotion today as some other leading ladies, noted David Cote. Maybe that's because she was denied the chance to immortalise most of her performances on celluloid, 
or because she didn't have an outsized personal or idiosyncratic voice like Ethel Merman. While Merman was the Broadway powerhouse, whose brassy, clarion voice could galvanize audiences, Martin was the subtler, more inward-looking artist. If she couldn't top Merman for vocal prowess, she probably had the edge on that elusive quality called charm. But, as David Cote argues, whatever the cause of Martin's underrated stature, she deserves credit for being the first to tell us what we now take for granted, that the hills are alive, that children can fly, and that men can be washed out of hair. My day in the hills has come to an end, I know. A star has come out to tell me it's time to go. But deep in the dark green shadows are voices that urge me to stay. So I pause and I wait and I listen for one more sound, for one more lovely thing that the hills might say. The hills are alive with the sound of music. With songs they have sung for a thousand years The hills fill my heart with the sound of music My heart wants to sing every song it hears My heart wants to beat like the wings of the birds that rise from the lake the trees My heart wants to sigh Like a chime that lies From a church On a breeze To laugh like a brook When it trips and falls Over stones In its way To sing Through the night Like a lark Who is learning to When my heart is lonely I know I will hear What I've heard before My heart will be blessed With the sound of music And I'll sing Mary Martin there singing the title song from The Sound of Music, taken from the 1959 original cast recording of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. Mary Virginia Martin was born in Weatherford, Texas on December 1st, 1913, although some reports place the date one year later, the younger daughter of Preston Martin, a lawyer, and Juanita Presley Martin, a violin teacher. Weatherford was famous for its watermelons, and long after Martin had become a star, a sign was erected on the courthouse lawn, Weatherford, Texas, 
home of watermelons and Mary Martin. She would later joke that she never got top billing in her hometown. Although doctors had told Juanita that she would risk her life if she attempted to have another baby, she was determined to have a boy. Instead, she had another baby girl that the couple called Mary. It is said that all the neighbors gathered around her bedroom window, waiting for the rising of a curtain to signal the baby's arrival. It must have been a good omen, Martin later noted. Curtains have been going up for me ever since. A precocious, talented youngster, Martin's childhood as she describes it in her 1976 autobiography, My Heart Belongs, was secure and happy. Her family had a barn and orchard that kept her entertained, and she grew up somewhat of a tomboy, climbing trees and riding ponies. Never, never, never can I say I had a frustrating childhood, she later stated. It was all joy. Mother used to say she had never seen such a happy child, that I awakened each morning with a smile. I don't remember that, but I do remember that I never wanted to go to bed, to go to sleep, for fear that I would miss something. Here is Martin in an interview with Connie Martinson, recorded in 1984. Mary, a life that spans some of the great moments, Broadway, films, and much love. Well, yes, that's all quite true. Much love for, um, for the theater, but before that, at the age of five, much love for just singing. Just singing, singing, performing, ham at the age of five. But what a marvelous mother and father to imbue mm -hmm. you with this way of looking at the world through, you know, not rose-colored glasses, because you are very honest in the book about some of the downsides. Mm -hmm. But the glass is half full. Well, I had a fabulous mother and father. My, my mother was a musician, a violinist, and my father was a lawyer. So the, the combination of the two genes that I received from them um, and, and, and great love in my family with my sister who was 11 years older than I was. Martin was introduced to the world of show business by watching movies and imitating singers and dancers. She sang frequently at her local church at community gatherings and events such as the local fireman's ball and at a bandstand in the square outside her father's courthouse. Even in those days without microphones, my high piping voice carried all over the square, Martin later recalled. At the age of 12, Martin's mother took her to study with a voice teacher, Helen Futzkehoon, head of the voice department at Texas Christian University. At the age of 16, Martin married Benjamin Hagman, a Weatherford accountant and later a lawyer. A year later she was pregnant with a child, Larry Martin Hagman, who would go on to achieve fame as J.R. Ewing on the long-running television series Dallas. Due to her pregnancy, Martin was forced to leave finishing school. She initially embraced the role of wife and mother, but soon learned that this life, as she would later say, was nothing but role-play. I was 17, a married woman without real responsibilities, miserable about my mixed-up emotions, afraid that there was something awfully wrong with me because I didn't enjoy being a wife. Worst of all, I didn't have enough to do, Martin later confessed in her autobiography. At the age of 17, Martin opened the Mary Hagman School of Dance in Weatherford, 
then went to Hollywood to further her own dance training at the Franchon and Marco School of the Theatre. She opened two other dance studios, one in Mineral Wells, where she was given a ballroom studio at the local hotel and paid for the space by singing with the hotel orchestra once a week, a performance also broadcast on the radio, and another dance studio in Cisco. For several years, Martin went back and forth between Texas and California and between teaching and performing. Now, Mary, you were born in Texas. Your father was a lawyer, your mother a violin teacher. Did she teach you? Yes. My mother did teach me uh, at the age of five mm. to play the violin, a very small violin. And it was so absolutely dreadful. The sounds were so ghastly uh, that I just couldn't bear to study because I, I, she played so beautifully. You really, you, you preferred to sing. Yes, that I know. of course I preferred to sing. <laughs> but you switched from singing to dancing. You opened a dancing school. Yes, I opened a dancing school in Weatherford, Texas at the age of 17. And very successful, too. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, my sister taught me my first step. I, I, I had always danced, but I didn't know what you call routine. So she taught me the waltz clog. That was my first step. And it was that dancing school that first took you to Hollywood. It did, because I had three pupils uh, the first week, 30 the first month, and 300, and three schools of dancing in three years. I had to learn to do more than the waltz clog, so I went to California every summer to study, and I, I studied everything and taught everything. Mm -hmm. And that gave you the idea, working in Hollywood briefly, of working professionally. Mm -hmm. Back in Texas, you began singing on the radio, but uh, on sustaining time, you didn't actually get paid. Oh, I never did get paid. Oh, forever I didn't get paid. And that extract from an interview with Martin was conducted by Roy Plomley and broadcast as part of the BBC's Desert Island Discs on March 28, 1977. The dancing school flourished until it was eventually destroyed by fire, started by a man who thought that dancing was a sin. Unhappy and dissatisfied with her role as a young bride and mother, Martin left everything behind, including her young son, and returned to Hollywood. There she plunged herself into auditions, so much so that she became known as Audition Mary. Sometimes I think that I cheated my own family and my closest friends by giving to audiences so much of the love that I might have kept for them, she later stated, but that's the way I was made. I truly don't think that I could help it. Among Martin's first auditions in Hollywood, she sang Indian Love Call. After singing the song at one audition, a tall, craggly man who looked like a mountain, as she described him, told Martin that he thought she had something special. It turned out that that man was Oscar Hammerstein II, the famous lyricist, who was also responsible for the lyrics to Indian Love Call. Aside from auditions, Martin sang and danced in local nightclubs. No, but I really got my training in, in the, you know, nightclubs. And yeah. one would start at, one nightclub started at midnight. Mm -hmm. That's when it started. I'd get home at 7 o'clock in the morning. This was great training. If you, can, if you can keep people quiet in a bar while you're singing, you can keep, uh, you can learn how to do in the theater. Mm -hmm. So I think for young people to start anywhere, you know, wherever you can perform, to perform, yeah. because to you learn everything. something from every experience. Martin there in an interview with Bill Boggs, recorded in 1976. One evening, 
Martin performed in a Sunday night talent show at the Trocadero nightclub in Los Angeles, singing The Weekend of a Private Secretary and an operatic number titled Il Bacio in her own syncopated jazzy version, she created a sensation. To her astonishment, people stood on chairs and tables and cheered her on. Jack Benny, who was in the audience, later told her that it was one of the most exciting moments he could remember. In 10 minutes, Martin later recalled, my life had changed. recording of Martin singing Il Bacio with music by Luigi Arditi and lyrics by Gotardo Aldighieri. Another member of the audience who was present that evening was Lawrence Schwab, a producer who took charge of Martin's career. In answer to the frequent question, what causes a big break, Martin later said, work. Work and work and work. Be ready when the break comes. As she wrote in her autobiography, All my life I have felt guilty if I didn't use the talent that I had as fully as I could. At Schwab's recommendation, 
Martin traveled to New York to audition for a suddenly vacant supporting role in the forthcoming Cole Porter musical Leave It to Me. As Mal Gusso noted in the New York Times, at her audition, the unknown actress strode into a suite in the Ritz Towers and announced that she was going to sing four songs, adding, If I can't sing all four, I'd rather not sing at all. As Martin recalled in her book, a man reclining on a couch said very mildly, Carry on, on all fours. She later discovered that the philosophical man on the couch was none other than Cole Porter, the composer of the show. When asked whether she had ever been on a New York stage, she admitted that she had not, and when asked why she thought she could do it, she answered boldly, Try me. Martin so captivated Porter and his collaborators with her straightforward, self-confident delivery that she was cast in the secondary role of Dolly Winslow, despite the fact, or rather because of the fact, that she was cast against type. An innocent country girl playing a kept woman and singing a witty mock striptease while removing her ermine wraps in the showstopper My Heart Belongs to Daddy, in which almost every word has a double meaning. According to reports, Martin did not fully comprehend the innuendo contained in the song's lyrics until Sophie Tucker, one of her fellow cast members, explained the worldly, witty lyrics to her. Thank、you 
The deliciously wicked and entertaining My Heart Belongs to Daddy from Leave It to Me. Music and lyrics by Cole Porter and sung, of course, by Mary Martin. Leave It to Me opened on Broadway at the Imperial Theatre on November 9, 1938. Music scholar David Ewan wrote that Martin stole the limelight in her Broadway debut. Following her performance of My Heart Belongs to Daddy, the house went into an uproar thereby proclaiming a new queen of musical comedy. Here is theatrical columnist Rady Harris in an interview from NBC's Biographies and Sound, first broadcast in 1956. Mary Martin had become the showstopper. Theatrical columnist Rady Harris remembers the moment clearly. I think I was one of a handful of people that night, that memorable night at the Imperial Theater, 17 years ago, uh, that knew Mary Martin personally. I mean, to the rest of the audience, she was an undiscovered talent. But I don't think any of us, even those closest to her, dreamed that she would have this absolutely fabulous success that night. I've never seen a number stop the show cold. And the next morning, she was everybody's valentine. By the time I got backstage to her dressing room, Instead of being the six forlorn friends who knew her, we were practically shunted aside in the mob scene with Elsa Maxwell and Jules Glenzer and Winthrop Rockefeller and this uh, man in the tuxedo who kissed her on either cheek and said, Darling, you are absolutely marvelous. And Mary turned to me and said, Who was that? And I said, That was Noel Coward. Martin's overnight success put her on the cover of Life magazine and drew the attention of Hollywood. Under contract to Paramount, she appeared in ten films over the course of four years, starting with the great Victor Herbert in 1939. Although Martin's delightfully warm personality and theatrical star quality were not so effective on film, she did have her moments, particularly in Rhythm on the River with Bing Crosby and in Birth of the Blues, in which she joined Crosby and Jack Teagarden for The Waiter and the Porter and the Upstairs Maid. She also sang the title song and Kiss the Boys Goodbye, which became a big hit for Tommy Dorsey, and duetted with Dick Powell on Hit the Road to Dreamland in Star Spangled Rhythm. Other film appearances include Love Thy Neighbor, New York Town, Happy Go Lucky, and True to Life. Martin's last feature film appearance was a cameo as herself in MGM's Main Street to Broadway in 1953. Even though Martin's legacy on film may be all but forgotten today, there was, according to Mal Gusso in the New York Times, at least one positive outcome of her disparaging years in Hollywood. She met and married Richard Halliday, a story editor at Paramount Studios. You made some pretty good pictures, lightweight musicals with Bing Crosby mm -hmm. and Jack Benny and Fred Allen. And, and Dick Powell, Rancho Tone... I made about 12, 12 or 14 pictures, I can't remember. I loathed them all. 
But the, the greatest thing that happened to me in Hollywood was meeting my husband, my Richard, my Richard Halliday, and he was story editor of Paramount. And uh, his life work was cut out for him for the rest of his life, editing me. <laughs> Why is it that all that spell in your life meant so little to you? All those Paramount pictures, they, they were pretty good. They, they were successful. Well, they, they said so. I just thought they were dull. And um, I didn't like making movies. Mm -hmm. I, I love an audience. Yes. I'm so glad you're sitting there. You're my audience. <laughs> good, good. Martin there in an interview with Roy Plumley from the BBC's Desert Island Discs, broadcast on March 28, 1977. In addition to becoming her husband, Richard Halliday also became Martin's manager and closest professional advisor, and the father of their daughter, Heller Halliday. If she had remained in Hollywood, Martin may have disappeared into the studio system, but wisdom prevailed and she returned to New York where she hoped to re-establish herself in the theatre. Early in 1943, Martin signed with Vinton Friedley for a new musical called Dancing in the Streets. As Brian Kello pointed out in Opera News, not even Martin's dedication could transform dancing in the streets into something worthwhile. The best song in the score was Got a Brand New Daddy, a blatant nod to the number that had first put her on the map. The Boston notices for the show were horrible, and it closed there after a few weeks, just as Oklahoma, which Martin had been offered but turned down, began its record-breaking run at Broadway St. James Theatre. Fortunately, Martin scored a great success with her next project, One Touch of Venus, written by Kurt Weil, Ogden Nash and S.J. Paddleman. The show, originally conceived as a vehicle for Marlena Dietrich, tells the story of the mythical love goddess Venus come to life in modern Manhattan. Following months of negotiations, Dietrich turned down the show because she found the play too sexy and profane. Cheryl Crawford, the producer, then approached Martin to play the role. Initially, she had difficulty seeing herself in the part, until her husband, Halliday, took her to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and made her study a wide range of Venuses. Tall ones, short ones, and even one who was noticeably broad in the beam, Martin wrote in her memoir. This persuaded her that despite not being a great beauty, she could play Venus, especially when Halliday hit on the idea of dressing her in the best clothes possible. One Touch of Venus was a hit, and Martin's reviews were full of praise. In the Sunday New York Daily News, John Chapman wrote, She hit a stride which I think will carry her as far as she wants to go in the theatre. Here is Oscar Hammerstein II. In the last scene she came on, a little gingham dress, just a regular American, corn-fed American girl. And I turned to my wife and I said, this is the kind of part she ought to play. This was uh, not disparaging her uh, portrayal of Venus because she was great in this. But it seemed to me that this, what, this is where she belonged. This was really nearer Mary Martin. And uh, I always wanted to write a play for Mary. Uh, we were good friends and used to see each other and talk about working together. But uh, it just never bobbed up the, the right part for her in, in my plays. So when South Pacific came along, we were both very happy to finally get together on a play. 
and that interview from 1956. Martin was thrilled with the success of One Touch of Venus, and despite the fact that her Paramount contract still had years to run, from that time on, she belonged to the stage. Tell me, is love still a popular suggestion or merely an obsolete art? Forgive me for asking this simple question. I'm unfamiliar with his heart. I'm a stranger here myself. Why is it wrong to murmur I adore him when it's shamefully obvious I do? Does love embarrass him or does it bore him? I'm only waiting for my cue. I'm a stranger here myself. I dream of a day, of a gay, warm day with my face between his hands. Have I missed the path? Have I gone astray? I ask and no one understands. Love me or leave me, that seems to be the question. I don't know the tactics to use. But if he should offer a personal suggestion, how could I possibly refuse when I'm a stranger here myself? Please tell me, tell a stranger, by curiosity goaded, is there really any danger that love is now outmoded? I'm interested especially in knowing why you waste it. True romance is so fleshly. With what have you replaced it? What is your latest foible? Is gin rummy more exquisite? Is skiing more enjoyable? For heaven's sakes, what is it? I can't believe that love has lost its glamour, that passion is really passé. If gender is just a term in grammar, how can I ever find my way when I'm a stranger here myself? How can he ignore my available condition? Why these Victorian views? You see here before you a woman with a mission. I must discover the key to his ignition. And then if he should make a diplomatic proposition, how could I possibly refuse? How could I possibly refuse when I'm a stranger here myself? I'm a stranger here myself with music by Kurt Weil and lyrics by Ogden Nash as sung by Mary Martin from the original cast recording of One Touch of Venus. After One Touch of Venus, Martin starred in the musical Lute Song, the show which introduced Yul Brynner to Broadway, and in 1946 made her London debut in Noel Coward's ill-fated Pacific 1860. That same year, Martin also reprised My Heart Belongs to Daddy in Night and Day, a Hollywood film about Cole Porter in which she played herself auditioning for Porter, played by Cary Grant. After returning to Broadway, 
Martin was so enraptured by Ethel Merman in Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun that she agreed to star as Annie Oakley in the national touring production of the show. Her triumphant performance brought her a special Tony Award for spreading theatre to the country, and though Ethel Merman had played the title character, Annie Oakley, in the original production, the role seemed made to measure for Martin. As always, she was undeterred by the fact that she was succeeding another star, which she also did later when she took Carol Channing's Hello Dolly on tour across the US and to Asia. Here is Martin in a 1984 interview with Connie Martinson, followed by another interview clip with Annie Get Your Gun producer Josh Logan from 1956. Never afraid of taking over somebody else's role either. Never. To put a Mary Martin stamp on Annie Get Your Gun or any of the uh, uh, Hello Dolly. I, I wasn't because, you see, in, like in England, everybody, or in ballet, they mm-hmm. do great shows. They will continue to do the same thing in ballet, mm-hmm. take other people's parts, and they, they don't remember that person who did it. And uh, I, I never... I. I, the only no one could believe that I was going to do Annie Get Your Gun yeah. because of Merman, and I said, "But I am, but I'll never do it in New York. That's her town." Yeah. But I will do it all over the United States, which I did. The night it opened in New Haven, Dick Halliday saw it and said, "That's the part for Mary." Producer director Josh Logan, and Mary saw it later and decided it was for her too, and she did a very brave thing. She decided that she would wanted to play that part so much that she would take it on tour and play the national company, even though she was as big a star in those days, and of course still is, as Nathal Merman. And the idea of following a big star in a secondary part had never been done by any very big star before. And Mary has always got that kind of bravery and courage that, uh, and nerve to do something that is different. And so... Uh, she and everyone said, oh, but Mary, you're too much of a lady, you're too delicate, you can't make enough noise to play this part. And she said, I can't. And she took her hair down and messed it up and bellowed louder than Ethel Merman ever made, <laughs> bellowed in her life. And uh, so convinced everyone in this uh, room that Edna Ferber was the one, I think, who had doubted her ability. And just suddenly, the, um, Mary, Mary had the part. Let's listen now to Mary Martin and John Rayett singing Anything You Can Do from Annie Get Your Gun, taken from an NBC television broadcast of the show from 1957. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can shoot a partridge with a single cartridge. I can get a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that? Yes. So can a rat. Any note you can reach, I can go higher. I can sing anything higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. 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 Anything you can buy, I can buy cheaper. I can buy anything cheaper than you. Fifty cents. Forty cents. Thirty cents. Twenty cents. 
No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say softer. I can say anything softer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I can drink my liquor faster than a flicker. I can drink it quicker and get even sicker. I can't open any safe. Without being caught? Sure. That's what I thought you could. Any note you can hold, I can hold longer. I can hold any note longer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, no, you I can. can. Yes, you can. Anything you can wear, I can wear better. In what you wear, I look better than you. In my coat. In your vest. In my shoes. Yeah. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say faster. I can say anything faster than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I can jump a hurdle. I can wear a girdle. I can knit a sweater. I can fill it better. I can do most anything. Can you bake a pie? No. Neither can I. Any note you can sing, I can sing sweeter. I can sing anything sweeter than you. No, you can't. Oh, yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't, can't, can't. Yes, I can, can, can. Yes, no, I can. Her success in Annie Get Your Gun led Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein in 1948 to offer Martin the starring role of Nellie Forbush in South Pacific. Here is lyricist Oscar Hammerstein in a clip from a 1956 interview. We called her up uh, in San Francisco, and uh, this was for South Pacific, and, and uh, we told her that we had uh, we were going to engage uh, Pinza to sing the uh, part of Emil de Beck, and we'd like her to play opposite him, and she said, why do you want two basses? She had reservations about the part, and uh, when she came to New York, I had a long talk with her, and pointed out to her that um, one of the tests of a good part is whether the character changes during the course of the performance, whether the story of the play makes this particular character change in any way. And uh, this character certainly did and, and developed and changed. She was not the same girl as she was when the curtain rose. We played a few songs for her, and we read the first scene uh, to her, and she, you know, she fell. The part of the naive Arkansas nurse who falls in love with the older Frenchman Emile de Beck was ideally suited to Martin. As Brian Keller noted in Opera News, the role of Nellie Forbush brought out the qualities of guilelessness and pluck that Martin would forever be known for. And she really did seem like every average American girl whose life had been turned upside down by World War II. Here is Martin singing a cockeyed optimist from the 1949 original cast recording of Rogers and Hammerstein's South Pacific. When the sky is a bright and 
well off. I forget every cloud I've ever seen. So they call me a cockeyed optimist, immature and incurably green. I have heard people rant and rave and bellow that we're done and we might as well be dead. But I'm only a cockeyed optimist, and I can't get it into my head. I hear the human race is falling on its face and hasn't very far to go. But every whippoorwill is selling me a bill and telling me it just ain't so. I could say life is just a ball of jello and appear more intelligent and smart. But I'm stuck like a dope with a thing called hope, and I can't get it out of my heart. It is said that Martin was initially hesitant to take on the role of Nellie Forbush for two reasons. Disliking hospitals, she was anxious to play the role of a nurse, and she felt insecure because her leading man would be an opera star, baritone Ezio Pinza, revealing the vocal inferiority complex that would nag at her throughout her career. In an Earl Wilson column anticipating a joint concert with Ethel Merman in 1977, Martin said, I'm not one of my great fans. I do not have one of the great voices, but I am a fan of Ethel Merman's. When we hit the same notes, her voice comes out as true as a trumpet, and mine comes out like an oboe. As Brian Kello in Opera News remarked, Martin had a pleasing apple pie voice, both sweet and spicy, but she stipulated to Rogers and Hammerstein that she did not want to sing a duet with Pinza because of the gulf between their abilities. Even if Martin harbored insecurities about her voice, she projected an outwardly demeanor of confidence and professionalism. Mary set the tone in the theater, recalled Bernice Saunders, who played ensign Cora McRae in South Pacific. Always on time, always professional. I never saw her lose her temper because her husband, Richard Halliday, covered everything for her. They were a hard-working team. When we opened in New Haven, the reviews were very good, but they raved about Pinza. At the time, the show's director, Josh Logan, was reported as saying, This is not enough for Mary. From then on, the musical's creative forces added or took out. They gave everything to her and give to their leading lady they did. Off stage for only 20 minutes throughout the entire show, Rogers and Hammerstein bestowed on Martin six superlative, memorable songs. From Cockeyed Optimist to Honey Bun, I'm Gonna Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair, and especially A Wonderful Guy. I expect every one of my crowd to make fun of my proud protestations of faith in romance. And 
they'll say I'm naive as a babe to believe every fable I hear from a person in pants. Fearlessly, I'll face them and argue their doubts away. Loudly, I'll sing about flowers in spring. Flatly, I'll stand on my little flat feet and say, Love is a grand and a beautiful thing. I'm not ashamed to reveal the world a famous feeling I feel. I'm as corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more a smart little girl with no heart. I have found me a wonderful guy. I am in the conventional dither with the conventional star in my eye. And you will note there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. I'm as trite and as gay as a daisy in May, a cliche coming true. I'm romantic and bright as a moon happy night pouring light on the dew. I'm as corny as Kansas in August, high as a flag on the 4th of July. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. A Wonderful Guy from South Pacific, sung by Mary Martin and recorded in 1949. Here is Martin talking about South Pacific. All right, let's talk about uh, South Pacific. Well, in South Pacific, I think probably was the most exciting thing that ever happened in my life because uh, I had done all these other things, and then out of the blue, they came up with this, this wonderful show, and this is right after the war. That's right. And uh, everybody who heard it went out of their minds. I mean, the, the, you know, Dick and Oscar, when when uh, when uh, when I was getting ready to go over to see Dick, 
and, and Oscar uh, uh, to hear the music. Yes. And suddenly they are playing all this. They played all these things for me. And Oscar, who had no singing voice, but was able to get the lyrics across it greatly, finally did it. And then they said, now you sing it. And you sing this song right after he had done it. And I got so carried away because that was, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. And so I got, I was sitting with Dick playing the piano on it. And when I said, I'm, no, no, I, it, was, it wasn't it. It was, I'm in love, I'm in love, that one. Yes. That, that song. And that, I got to that point, and I got so carried away that I fell off backwards. <laughs> and and uh, uh, Oscar said, never do it any other way. Oscar said it, or both of them said it, never do it any way. They just, I said, I can't fall off of it. I can't do this. I'll break my neck if I do that. He said, no, sing it that, with that vitality. Yes. Yes. Did, did you recognize that all of these songs, they were all masterpieces? Every single, every single every one. Every single one. And they had to take some out. They, had to, they took out two beautiful songs. How long did that show run on Broadway? I, I played it three years, I think. Three years. And then I went to London, and that was the fourth year. Hmm. And I had never done anything that long, you know. I mean, two years or something, you know. Yes. Three, and then going on to London, four. But but never was never was tired of it. No one. Everybody just loved it. And of course, we couldn't bring the whole company to London, so that that all had to be redone. How did the London audiences differ from the United States audience? Well, they they were absolutely out of their minds. They they thought it was so fabulous. And uh, but but again, they were so quiet. But at the end, we thought, my God, what's the matter? And they were stunned. They didn't see anything like it. And they, they, you know, they just couldn't believe it. Yeah, it really is. It's an unbelievable show, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's it couldn't have been more Nelly Forbush with me. You know, I mean, it was... Uh, it was perfect casting. Utter, utter, utter yeah. madness, but, but joyous. Yes, yeah, wonderful, wonderful show. Yeah. South Pacific became one of Martin's greatest triumphs and her on-stage chemistry with Pinza made theatrical history. Richard Watts, Jr. of the New York Post, wrote, Nothing I have ever seen her do prepared me for the loveliness, the humor, the gift for joyous characterization and sheer lovableness of her portrayal of Nellie Forbush. Hers is a completely irresistible performance. In his New York Times review, Brooks Atkinson called the musical rhapsodically enjoyable and described Martin's performance as full of quicksilver pertness and delight. It was at Martin's suggestion that Nellie Forbush washed that man right out of her hair, which meant that she literally shampooed her hair on stage for more than 1,000 performances. Wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms and send him on his way. Don't try to patch it up. Tear it up. Wash him out, dry him out, push him out, fly him out, cancel him and let him go. Yay, sister, I'm gonna wash that man. 
If a man don't understand you, if you fly on separate beams, waste no time, make a change. Ride that man right off your range. Rub him out of the roll call and drum him out of your dreams. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair from the original cast recording of South Pacific. Here is Martin's close friend, Jinx Falkenberg McCrary, recounting Martin's last performance as Nellie Forbush in South Pacific, recorded as part of NBC's 1956 Biographies in Sound. It was June 2nd, Saturday night. Mary gave this final performance as Nellie Forbush on stage, and, of course, the whole company stood and cheered in the finale, and then Rogers and Hammerstein, Logan and Hayward came out on stage and presented her with the beautiful pearl and diamond and gold bracelet, and Mary cried, and everybody cried. Well, the show was over. We all went backstage. There was a party afterwards on stage that the producers and the cast gave Mary, who was leaving. The party was over. We went to Mary's dressing room. She took her shoes off. She just, as she said, her favorite expression is, let's plop. You know, so she plopped on her dressing um, lounge for the last time in that dressing room. I said, Mary, I just can't get over you. I mean, I've always been impressed by your vitality and your interest in everything. But on this day, I should think you would have had such a letdown leaving South Pacific. And I should think you would have been so tired. How do you do it? And she said, well, Jinx, I try to remember that I feel God has given me something 
that I can give on stage, and I give as much of that as I can, every performance, every moment of my life. South Pacific earned a clutch of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and nine Tony Awards, among them Best Musical and Best Actress in a Musical for Martin. She recreated her role for the 1951 London production, where she was equally well received. I played New- South Pacific in New York for two and a half years, and they said, "Would I go on the road?" And I said, "No, I want to go to England." So I came to England again to the Drury Lane, and then I sang South Pacific for a year in a- London. As big a smash here as it had been on Broadway. It was pretty exciting. It was thrilling. And so then I had the fabulous good fortune of studying with Dino Barjoli in London. In London, because I was very tired. This is now three and a half years of singing. Uh, I'm in love with a wonderful guy at full blast, you know. So when I went to have an audition with Dino Barjoli, he said, "What do you do?" And I said, "I I, I sing in a show." He said, uh, "What show?" I said South Pacific. Oh, didn't mean a thing. I said,、uh, I said, do you know Richard Rogers? No. Oscar Hammerstein? No. See, I was way out of my depth. So he said, sing a scale. I said,、uh, all right. So I sang a scale, rather uneven. And I said, but perhaps you'd like to hear how I sing in the show. So then I put that blast on Wonderful Guy, and he. He went right off the piano stool and ducked under the piano. <laughs> I didn't think he was ever coming up. Anyway, I talked him into letting me study for for that period, and I stayed over another year and really studied, and I learned to sing Bohème in English. <laughs> an extract there from an episode of the BBC's Desert Island Discs, featuring Mary Martin, interviewed by Roy Plomley, and broadcast on March twenty eighth. 1977. Music writer Brian Kello notes that Halliday's influence over his wife was widely known in the theatre. Many also believe that he was gay, and that his relationship with Martin was a deeply caring but not a sexually driven one. Halliday may have wrapped Martin in cotton wool, determined that she not worry about many of the details that plague a star's life. But he was also a strict, obsessive taskmaster where she was concerned," noted Keller. As Martin liked to recall later in life, Halliday had worked in Hollywood as a story editor, and he later spent the rest of his life editing her to the point of not allowing her to carry a handbag. Above all, Martin and Halliday's relationship seems to have been a great professional partnership. Here again is Jinx Falkenberg McCrary. A close friend of Martin's, talking about Martin's marriage to Halliday and her role as mother, recorded in 1956. They、uh, are the perfect balance. Richard is is、uh, rather serious, great business head. He was story editor of Paramount Pictures for ten years. That's when and how they met. And、um, well, he's a he's a wonderful man and. He, he's the only one that can really control Mary, just to hold her down when it's when it's needed. It, it is it is the perfect marriage, the Hallidays. The home life is something very special because when Mary is at home, that is her whole life. She concentrates on her husband, on her handsome young son Larry, and on her beautiful young daughter Heller. And when Mary was on stage in South Pacific and lived in New York City and went 
from the hotel room to the dressing room at the theater, then went on stage every night and two matinee days a week. She had to concentrate on that. That was her career during the week. The minute Saturday night came, she'd get into the car, walk just off stage into the car, drive home, and Sunday and Sunday night and all day Monday until about 5 o'clock, every second was spent with Heller. Halliday seems to have been a necessary evil as far as other professionals in the theatre were concerned, and as a result, not one to make friends easily. Perhaps it was this isolation and the concealed nature of his life that led to his chronic alcoholism, a fact that Martin admits late and only fleetingly in her autobiography. Larry Hagman, Martin's son from her first husband, despised his moody stepfather. One night... Hagman wrote in his autobiography, he aimed a 22mm rifle at the back of Halliday's head as he left with Martin for the theatre. Hagman remained estranged from his mother until after Halliday's death from pneumonia, brought on by the latter's lifelong alcoholism and drug use. Here is Martin talking about Larry Hagman during a 1984 interview with Connie Martinson. Larry Hagman. Well, I adore him. And I'm the luckiest mother in the entire world from, to have that boy um, be my son. And, and the thing is that we had years of, of not-togetherness, and that was devastating, M- must have been desperately devastating to him, and certainly was to me. But it's over, and th- this, it's like having this gift from God suddenly, yeah. again, this ch- second chance at life, because... Now we, and that's why I don't want to go back on the stage. I'm having such fun with Larry, with his wife, Mime, who I adore, yeah. and Heller, who was in, in the theater from the time she was five till she retired at 14, saying that she'd had enough of it. She wanted to go to a proper school. But for all her reputation as a happy-go-lucky, young-at-heart trooper, it would be a mistake to assume that behind Martin's veneer of sunny professionalism, she did not possess her own brand of savvy, professional toughness that matched her husband's. Outwardly, she was warm, considerate and kind, but she did have a powerful instinct where her professional self-preservation was concerned. In one sense, notes Brian Kello in Opera News, Martin may have been far tougher than Ethel Merman, who could at times exhibit a personal vulnerability that Martin did not, simply because Merman had no Richard Halliday in her life. When Merman had a conflict with someone in a show, she took care of it herself. Martin left the dirty work to her husband, which allowed her to be charming to everyone around her. Martin projected the vitality of someone who loved her work and knew precisely how to make other people share in her happiness, wrote Mal Gusso in the New York Times. As Ilya Kazan, who directed her in her first Broadway starring role in One Touch of Venus, said in his autobiography, she was full of the love of being loved. Still, despite her sunny veneer, Martin could at times come across as somewhat of a distant and removed figure, noted biographer Ronald Davis. She rarely socialized, he wrote in his book, Mary Martin, Broadway Legend. Often, a limmer would pick her up directly after a show, and she would return home to rest for the next performance. They pay to see you at your peak, she reasoned. In his autobiography, 
Richard Rogers called Martin an extraordinary trooper, adding, In all the years I've known her, I have never seen her give a performance that was anything less than the best that was in her. Brian Keller in Opera News furthermore points out that the Martin legend remains one of a kind-hearted, disciplined and dedicated performer, the sort of star who is universally admired for her commitment to the most demanding and difficult medium of all, the theatre. I beat my brains out performing, and I like to hear the echo, Martin once famously stated. In Mary Martin, Broadway legend, Ronald Davis provides an insightful account of Martin's rehearsal process, her fortitude, her focus, hard work and dedication in originating her iconic roles. She spent two preparatory hours in the theatre before every show while performing in The Sound of Music. Right before opening night of the play The Skin of Our Teeth, she slammed her hand in a door, ripped off a fingernail and went on stage with a throbbing finger. She worked 14-hour days on Peter Pan to practice flying around the stage while wearing a body mic, one of the first actors to perfect this difficult feat. She suffered many painful falls during rehearsals and was once accidentally slammed into a brick wall, breaking her arm. She had also originally planned to sing a song in South Pacific while cartwheeling across the stage, until she cartwheeled right into the orchestra pit. It was also her idea to sing a song standing on her head in Jenny, one of her less successful musicals, and in rehearsal at the age of 63 in the Arbuzov play Do You Turn Somersaults, Martin turned somersaults on stage until she fell from a revolving platform and was grounded by her doctors. Here is Martin singing a jazzed-up version of the magic song Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo from Disney's 1950 animated film Cinderella, with music and lyrics by Al Hoffman, Mac David and Jerry Livingston, and taken from Martin's 1958 album Hi-Ho. If your mind is in a dither And your heart is I'll haze your dither and dither your haze with a magic, magic phrase. If you chased around by trouble and you're followed by a change, I'll jinx your trouble and trouble your jinx in less than forty winks. Put them together and what do you got? Bibbidi bobbidi boo. Salagadula, manchikaboola, bibbidi bobbidi boo. It'll do magic, believe it or not. Bibbidi bobbidi boo. Salagadula means manchikaboola root. But the thing I'm above that does the job is bibbidi bobbidi boo. Salagadula, 
South Pacific was followed in 1954 by Peter Pan, which Martin performed on Broadway and on television, complete with his celebrated aerial ballet. Although the creative forces behind Peter Pan comprised such theatre legends as director-choreographer Jerome Robbins, composer Jules Stein, lyricists Betty Comden and Adolf Green, and co-starred Cyril Richard as Captain Hook, Peter Pan is still thought of as Martin's triumph. She introduced Never Neverland, set hearts soaring when she sang and flew to glory in I'm Flying, and got legions of children and adults to prove that they believed in fairies by applauding with all their might. Peter Pan opened at Broadway's Winter Garden Theatre on October 20, 1954, to enraptured audiences and rave reviews, playing to sell-out or near-sell-out houses. Martin would win the Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical. And Richard for Best Actor. An interesting fact is that Peter Pan was the first Broadway production where the actors' voices were amplified through portable microphones. Though the Broadway production ran for only a hundred and fifty-two performances, it was largely through the three televised versions of Peter Pan, a live recording in 1955 and 1956, and then a studio recording in 1960. That Martin became indelibly linked with the role. At the time of the 1960 television production, Martin was performing in *The Sound of Music*. Each night, after the curtain fell on *The Sound of Music*, she would sprint across West 44th Street from the Lundfontein to the Helen Hayes Theatre to don the familiar outfit and strap on the flying wires for her rehearsals. Once again, the reviews and ratings were excellent. The production. Finally preserved on tape, was rebroadcast in 1963, 1966, and 1973, just often enough to give the show landmark status in baby boomers' cultural landscape. Peter Pan was, as Mal Gusso pointed out in the New York Times, an exact meeting of actress and character. She was completely immersed in the production and the role, and was especially cognizant of children's reactions to the show. Not so Jerome Robbins, who hadn't signed on to direct a kids' show. Martin reported that he especially hated it when the kids would shout "Look out, Peter!" during the performance. Martin, however, stayed in costume and character following each show until she had greeted and given fairy dust to the very last young audience member. Martin identified closely with the character of Peter Pan. In her autobiography, she declared that of all the characters she portrayed on stage, P. 
Peter Pan was indisputably her favorite for a very simple reason. Everyone else loves Peter so. She added, Neverland is the way I would like real life to be. Timeless, free, mischievous, filled with gaiety, tenderness and magic. Martin's fascination with the character of Peter Pan probably also had something to do with the frequent dreams of flying that she had experienced during her life, including as a child when she once jumped off the roof and broke her collarbone. Apparently, all of these dreams stopped just before the first television presentation of the show. Trying to explain the end of those dreams, she noted, Perhaps it was because I had experienced at last the joy of really flying. Martin could become almost mystical whenever she spoke about the experience, stating, I discovered I was happier in the air than on the ground. I probably always will be. I'll teach you. Oh, how lovely to fly! I'll teach you how to jump on the wind's back, and away we'll go. Oh. Wendy, when you're sleeping in your silly bed, you might be flying about with me, saying funny things to the stars. How do you do it? You just think lovely, wonderful thoughts, and up you go. Oh, how at me way up high suddenly here am i i'm flying i'm flying. Flying, flying, flying i can soar i can weave and what's more i'm not even trying oh, high up and as light as i can be Nothing will stop me now, higher still, look at how I can zoom around, Whoa. way up off the ground, I'm flying, I fly and I'm all over the place, you try and you fall flat on your face, I'm flying, 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 over bed, over chair, duck
star. I'm so proud. Look how far I've risen. High over the moon, higher I fly. Bye, oh, Mr. Moon, bid me goodbye. I'm flying. Heading far out of sight, second star to the right. Mary Martin there singing "I'm Flyin'" from the 1954 original cast recording of Peter Pan. During the rest of the 1950s, Martin appeared in several straight plays, including in 1955 a revival of Thornton Wilder's "The Skin of Our Teeth," which she and Helen Hayes took on tour. She also starred in two highly regarded television spectaculars, with Ethel Merman in 1953 as part of the Ford. 50th anniversary television show, which included a 35-song medley, and which can be heard in my first program in the series on Ethel Merman, and the other was Noel Coward in a unique two-person musical special called "Together with Music," broadcast on CBS in 1955. In 1959, Rogers and Hammerstein went to Martin again to ask her to originate the role of Maria von Trapp in *The Sound of Music*. Though her background could not have been more dissimilar from that of her real-life model, noted Mal Gusso in the New York Times, Martin and the audience felt her kinship with the real Maria von Trapp. As Martin noted, we both have the same drive and utter determination. The sound of music furthermore gave Martin the chance to display her homespun charm. Now we've got as far as 1957, and we come to another big one—one one especially written for you by Rogers and Hammerstein, inspired by a German film, was it not?、The、oh, Sound, Sound of, of Music. Yes. yes, that's right. And that I played that for two and a half years. And、uh, in that one, I always think they wrote the national anthem for children, Do Re Mi. <laughs> and then one day, Oscar said. All right, Mary. What else can you do? You know, because by this time I'd try anything. I said, "Well, you, I can yodel," and they said, "You really can yodel?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I can Texas yodel." So they wrote a song for that, "The Lonely Goat Herd." I love that song. Mary Martin there, interviewed by Roy Plomley from the March twenty eighth, nineteen seventy seven episode of the BBC's Desert Island Discs. And now let's listen to the lonely goatherd from Rogers and Hammerstein's *The Sound of Music*. High on a hill was a lonely goatherd, lay or lay or lay. Loud was the voice of the lonely goatherd, lay or lay or loo. Folks in a town that was quite remote heard, lay or lay or lay. Lusty and clear from the goat herd's throat, heard lay or lay or loo. Ah ho, lady hoodly, ah ho, lady hoodly, ah ho, lady hoodly, ah ho, lady hoodly, ah ho, lay. A prince on a bridge of a castle moat, heard lay or lay or lay. Man on a road with a load to tote, heard lay or lay or loo. 
men in the midst of a table don't hurt lay or lay or lay men drinking beer with a foam of float hurt lay or lay or One little girl in a pale pink coat heard lay or lay or lay She yodeled back to the lonely goat heard lay or lay or loo Soon her mama with a gleaming gloat heard lay or lay or lay What are you at for a girl and goat heard lay or lay or loo The Sound of Music opened on November 16, 1959 at the Lundfontein Theatre and was, of course, a blockbuster hit despite tepid reviews. In his review, Brooks Atkinson in the New York Times expressed disappointment over the American musical stage succumbing to the cliché of operetta, but he praised the show's melodies, rapturous singing and Miss Martin, and singled out the affecting beauty of the music from The Sound of Music as saving it from a story verging on sticky. The production, which had a top ticket price of $5, ran for more than 1,400 performances, and rather remarkably, during her two and a half years in The Sound of Music, Martin missed only one performance. The show went on to win eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical and a fourth Tony for Martin, a victory that surprised many who assumed that the award would go to Ethel Merman for Gypsy. Here is Martin's charming Tony Award acceptance speech following her win as Best Actress in a Musical. Miss Mary Martin.
I did it with a hoop. <laughs> I am very happy to have this award. And in fact, I am very happy, period. I love doing our show, Sound of Music. I love it every Wednesday and Saturday. I love it every single night. And I would like to tell you students that I can't express myself in my own words. I would like to express myself in words of Oscar Hammerstein because we have had more letters from young people all over the United States about his beautiful song, Climb Every Mountain. I don't sing it. Our beautiful, glorious voice, Patricia Newway, sings it to me every night, eight times a week. And the lyrics are, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream, a dream that will need all the love you can give every day of your life for as long as you live. You are looking at a woman who Oscar Hammerstein said once when he saw a picture of me when I was just about your age. He said, there's hope for everybody. <laughs> I have swallowed many rainbows and I have had many, many dreams come true. Believe me. And all I can say is I hope for the rest of my life I shall have a mountain to climb in the theater for the rest of my days. Thank you. Good night. As fate would have it, of her three Broadway triumphs, only Peter Pan was to be recorded for posterity. In the case of both South Pacific and The Sound of Music, other actresses played Mary Martin's role on screen. Mitzi Gaynor was Nellie Forbush, and of course Julie Andrews played Maria von Trapp in the well-known movie version of The Sound of Music. As Mal Gusso points out, this meant that except for her television appearances, especially one dynamic evening teamed with Ethel Merman, Martin's most noteworthy performances existed only on the stage and on records. Martin's next project, the ill-fated Arthur Schwartz and Howard Dietz 1963 musical Jenny, was her first real flop. Thereafter, she and her husband spent more time at their remote ranch, Nossa Fazenda, in Brazil. In 1965, Martin was persuaded to star as Dolly Levi in an international touring production of Jerry Herman's Hello Dolly, a part she, like Merman, had originally declined. The tour began in the United States, playing in 11 cities, then went on to tour Japan before journeying to Vietnam and Korea, and finally settling at the Theatre Royal in London for a six-month run. In its review of the tour's opening night in Minneapolis on April 19, 1965, Variety said, The national and international company's version of Hello Dolly should prove that Dolly isn't Carol Channing's exclusive property or Louis Armstrong's either. Mary Martin gives the title role her own interpretation and she has never been known to take a backseat to anyone. As Mrs. Dolly Levi, she is a knockout. Her dolly is perhaps more whimsical, less boisterous than Carol Channing's, 
but it's a rousing delineation of the role. Here is the show's title number, the well-known Hello Dolly, taken from the original London cast recording.
fellas, find me a vacant knee, fellas. Martin took her final bow in a Broadway musical in 1966 with Robert Preston in the two-hander I Do, I Do, which ran for 560 performances and brought Martin another Tony Award nomination for leading actress in a musical. A national tour with Preston began in March 1968 but was cancelled early as Martin had to undergo a hysterectomy. During the 1970s, Martin did more straight theatre and won a Peabody Award for the television film Valentine. With the death of her husband Richard Halliday in 1973, she withdrew from public sight, unable to work. Here she is talking about the loss of her husband from an interview with Bill Boggs recorded in 1976. Can you comment at well, all on this tell. subject, Mary? That well, I, I, um, this, you've gone through it and you've learned yes, something th- about life and about yourself. This is, uh, you know, Helen. This happened to Helen much longer uh, ago, but mine was mm-hmm. has just been three years, and I think that that uh, I am the typical wife, mother, of of anyone who loses the man that they love and will love forever. And, and at the beginning, you're in complete shock. There's no way to, to understand it until it happens, and you are in shock. You can't believe it. Then there comes a period where you are so utterly lost 
And, and when I was that way, I went back to a place that we had been only once, and it was on the ocean, and I walked. And every day I walked by the sea, walked, 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 and let myself think every single thought that, that would hurt you me. You couldn't repress anything. No, let it happen, let, let it, it come. And then, naturally, my joy came back into my life with my, our, our daughter, Heller, uh, mar remarrying uh, and, and having a wedding and having young people around and, and my children all coming to, to me and being with me and having this fabulous second chance to really know my children and my grandchildren. Because always in the theater, you, the theater is the main thing. But this was the greatest help. Then there came a period where I was furious with Richard. Oh, I was so mad. How dare he leave me? And, that, and I hear that this happens. Oh, I think so. You know, so. and I really would talk and say, you, how, how, could, how could you do this to me? You know, because he'd, 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 he'd taken care of me for 34 years. Now I'm going through another period, and I uh, have decided, and it happened because of the book, I had to face that I was not going to have him with me. Yeah. I do but not that face that I will not see alone. him, but I feel I know I will. Yeah. You know, but that's my way of thinking. But... I have turned my life around, and I moved to a place that I had never lived. I painted the house pink and turned it around. I made the back the front and the front the back. Mm -hmm. So I started my new life because, as I do say in the book, if, if I don't go on, and Richard dedicated his life to me, it was our career, but if I don't go on and do things to bring joy to people that I love, and that's the public and my friends, then his life would have been in vain. That's beautiful. So mm. go on and there's, on and on, because he would be unhappy if I didn't. There's great inspiration in that, as there is great inspiration in this book, which we have not shown you yet. Mary Martin, My Heart Belongs, is dedicated to your husband. And not to only the, to the man who taught me the meaning of the words heart and belongs. Following her husband's death, Martin moved to Palm Springs to be near her friend Janet Gaynor and resurfaced a few years later, returning to New York in 1977 to star with Ethel Merman in a benefit performance of Together Again. In 1978, she starred with Sir Anthony Quayle in the short-lived comedy Do You Turn Somersaults. In 1981, Martin appeared as a host on Over Easy, a public television series about aging. In 1982, she was involved in a devastating taxicab accident in San Francisco that took the life of her close friend Ben Washer and left her, her friend Janet Gaynor and Gaynor's husband, Paul Gregory, severely injured. It took Martin several years to recover from the accident, but she did, and on October 20, 1985, she made her final Broadway stage appearance and was applauded by her peers in Our Hearts Belong to Mary, a one-night tribute to the great star. In 1986-87, Martin returned to the stage to make her final U.S. stage appearance alongside Carol Channing in a national tour of James Kirkwood's comedy Legends. Martin and Channing each portrayed an aging actress. For much of the time, Martin had to wear a shortwave radio device to prompt her whenever she forgot her lines. In 1989, Martin received a Kennedy Center Award, given annually at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. That same year, she also returned to New York 
to participate in a birthday tribute to Richard Rogers at the Imperial Theatre, where, decades before, she had made her Broadway debut in Leave It To Me. In May of 1990, she was scheduled to sing My Heart Belongs to Daddy at the 75th anniversary celebration of the Schubert Theatre in New Haven, but cancelled her appearance because of illness. After a year-long battle with cancer, she passed away on November 3, 1990, at her home in Rancho Mirage, California, just weeks before her 77th birthday. As she once said, Thank you all for the spirit of my life. It will never end, because when I do, I'll be swinging up there on a star. When a star is born, they possess a gift or two. One of them is this. They have the power to make a wish come true. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. will come to you If your heart is in your dream No request is too extreme When you wish upon a star As dreamers do Fate is kind to those who love the sweet fulfillment of their secret longing. Like a boat out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you
When You Wish Upon a Star, written by Lee Harline and Ned Washington from Walt Disney's 1940 adaptation of Pinocchio, in that version sung there by Mary Martin, of course, and taken from her 1958 album Hi-Ho. Martin's uniquely lovable personality earned the adoration of audiences, and she was able to make them believe that each person in the theatre was an individual to whom she was giving all her attention. Coupled with that, her determination, pluck, charm, self-mocking humour, and a profound sense of self, according to Mal Gusso in the New York Times, converged to make Martin an exhilarating theatre artist and one of Broadway's greatest stars. And even though her voice may have been limited in power and resources, increasingly so as her career progressed, it possessed a warm, creamy, golden glow that captured the hearts and imaginations of audiences worldwide. In reviewing her performance in South Pacific, Kenneth Tynan said that Martin reminded him of something Aldous Huxley wrote about the minor Caroline poets. They spoke in their natural voices and it was poetry. While Ethel Merman was an entire brass section and Carol Channing a parade, Martin remained natural and exactingly true to life, and it was poetry. And that brings us to the end of tonight's edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. Do join me again next Friday, June 19th at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio for a program on one of Broadway's boldest and brassiest performers, the one and only Elaine Stretch. Before I go, however, a reminder that if you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can do so on my website, On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. That web address again, www.onandofftherecord.com. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback about tonight's program, I'd love to hear from you via email. Adrian at onandofftherecord.com or you can send me a message on the On and Off the Record Facebook page. To play us out tonight, Mary Martin's magical and timeless rendition of Never Never Land from the original 1954 Broadway cast recording of Peter Pan. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful weekend till next week at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio. Good night. place. Please tell me. Would you believe me if I told you? Why, promise. For sure. For sure. I have a place where dreams are born and time is never planned. It's not on any chart. You must find it with your heart. Never, never land It might be miles beyond the moon Or right there where you stand Just keep an open mind And then suddenly you'll find Never, never land You'll have a treasure if you stay there more precious far than gold For once you have found your way there You can 
never grow old And that's my home where dreams are born And time is never planned Just think of lovely things And your heart will fly on wings Forever in never, never land Your heart will fly on wings forever. 